and welcome to this edition of Mideast Junction with me, Anne-Marie Basada. We hear a lot about Iran in the news these days, particularly in regards to brewing hostilities between Washington and Tehran. The two countries have maintained distant and non-existent relations since the 1979 revolution that turned Iran from a constitutional monarchy into a theocracy. That revolution put in place a system which aimed to unite religion and democratic rule, thereby liberating the people from what had become a dictatorship under the Shah, Mohammad Reza Pahlavi. The new system gave ultimate power to the Shia clerics headed by the supreme leader. At that time, Sayyid Ruhala Musavi Khomeini, the man who pushed for the revolution to liberate the people, came back to Iran and took over as the first supreme leader, Ayatollah Khomeini. He put in place his vision of this new Iran. Even after his death on June 3, 1989, many are surprised at the durability of this Islamic Republic. In June this year, on the occasion of the 30th anniversary of his death, many looked back to the legacy left by Khomeini and what he did for the country. Well, I think that 30 years after his death, uh, the Islamic Republic is a different Islamic Republic. And what's changed is the ideology um, of the Islamic Republic was um, built on uh, the promise of social justice, um, improving the lives of ordinary Iranians, um, and, uh, of course, creating a durable Islamic-based system. That's Sanam Vakil, a senior research fellow at Chatham House's Middle East and North Africa program. And in both of these arenas, the system has failed to deliver to the people in, in terms of economic opportunities, in terms of better livelihood um, and a brighter future. Um, and... Um, in the realm of revolutionary values and religious ideology, uh, that is also waning among the population that is much more cynical um, after uh, decades of, of seeing its leadership use religion for political purposes. But Sayyid Mohammed Marandi, a professor at the University of Tehran, sees the legacy through a different lens. I think his most important legacy, therefore, is that he actually applied theory, he put theory into practice. And I would say despite the many caricatures of Iran in the West, in particular of the past four decades, which is, I think, largely linked to uh, the Orientalist tradition of, of old, that he had that this uh, that the constitution of the Islamic Republic of Iran has been pretty successful. It has we've had um, successive uh, presidents, uh, we've had parliaments, we've had local councils, and we've had, after the demise of Ayatollah Khomeini, we had almost immediately a new leader put in place without any instability and without any difficulty. And this all has had, this all took place in the, con- in the context of constant American hostility. So two very different views on the legacy of Khomeini 30 years after his death But what about those who fought in the revolution for change and for Khomeini to come to power? Je suis directeur du Centre culturel Puyat depuis 30 ans. 
For 30 years, I've been the director of uh, the Puya Cultural Center. It's a Franco-Iranian center, which is active in all cultural activities, but we're especially active in music and in promoting professional Iranian musicians in France and Europe, or indeed the world. This is Abbas Bakhtiari. Here, just in front of the picturesque Canal Saint-Martin in central Paris, Abbas has been running his cultural center. Inside, people are sitting close to the ground on poofs and wooden chairs with Persian carpets covering the floors. Various photos from the country's past are hung on the walls, along with a selection of shelves packed with books on Iran's history, culture, and music CDs, some even future Abbas playing. I come from a very closed-off country. It's a country with a religious system that includes democracy, liberty, and humanity. And after 35 years of exile, we are still in the same place. Nothing has changed for us or the situation in the country. Abbas recounts his story with intensity and an almost pained look on his face as he remembers when his life took a complete change of course. When I was 20, I did join the revolution. I fought against the Shah's regime, but neither myself nor the Iranian people thought that one day a big nightmare would be waiting for us. Life under the Shah was understandably not easy for the majority of Iranians. At the risk of boring you with too many historic details, it is important to understand why Khomeini's promises to change the country were so revered. Entering the 20th century, Iran was ruled by a Shah monarchy. At the time, Britain and other global powers were forging strong alliances with oil-producing countries. Over the course of the two world wars, the UK in particular relied heavily on Iran for oil. Its money in turn provided for the Shah's indulgent lifestyle, leaving the majority of Iranians near the brink of poverty. Finally, in 1951, Prime Minister Mohammad Mossadegh was elected on a platform of pro-poor democratic reforms, including the nationalization of Iranian oil. The UK was not happy about this, as they fear their access to affordable and plentiful oil would be blocked. And so they pushed for the Prime Minister to be overthrown. Meanwhile, the US stepped in and declared the catchphrase of the day, a nation's right to self-determination. And so Mossadegh remained. That is, until his pro-Iran policies were feared to be aligning with those of communist Soviet Union. So, in 1953, the American CIA helped lead a coup against Mossadegh, Operation Ajax. His fall from power is generally seen as the closest Iran got to true democracy. Because after him, the Shah of Iran reassumed control. 
And the West once again had easy access to oil to the benefit of the ruling family and not the general population. You know, the Iranian people took to the streets to push back against the Shah because life under him was not normal. There was no democracy, no freedom. We had become a dictatorship. So we tried to find another solution to open a window to freedom, to democracy, just like here in France or in Europe. We also needed that, and that's why intellectuals and all types of Iranians took to the streets to change the system. But we had no idea what would happen. Promises came from Khomeini, who was in exile in a suburb of Paris. Promises with just sufficient words to provide relief, but without much detail. He sent many messages to the country, to the Iranian people, saying, once I arrive in Iran, you will have freedom, all opponents, the Marxists, Leninists, everybody will be free in this country, no one will need to work, even the poor will have homes, there will be free electricity, life will be filled with pleasure. But those promises, woven with the hope of a new Iran, a free Iran, fell to the side within weeks of Khomeini's big return to Tehran. But after he returned, life indeed became good, but only for Islamists. Others didn't even have the right to breathe. And little by little, in a matter of months, in fact, Life became a big nightmare for us. We had the revolution in 1979, on February 19th, and only three months later, a war broke out between the Iranian regime and the Sunni Kurds in the center of the country, and then another war with the Turkmen, and then after that, attacks on the universities, intellectuals, poets were thrown in jail, and assassinations began. Khomeini's vision of a theocracy was taking root, and this vision catered to the majority Shia Muslims, not the other minorities that had been living in Iran for generations, and not for those who didn't want to see a country uniting religion with its government. Those dissenters, particularly the young, were targeted and silenced. In 1982, a big problem became obvious among Iranian families. The Iranian regime had killed so much of the youth who were not in agreement with them. And little by little, seven years later, a fatwa was issued to kill off the political prisoners. That's why today, even though things may appear to be going well, if you look hard enough, you'll barely find one family that hasn't lost a child, either to war or to prison. And to ensure the durability of the theocracy, restriction after restriction were put in place in the name of religion. Abbas and many others living in exile resented this justification via religion. It's an Islamist system 
but it doesn't want anything to do with other Muslims. But here in France, for example, there are many Muslims who come to my center, Moroccans, Tunisians, people from all over the world, and they come here and we discuss and we share in life together because we know the importance of democracy and what it means. But in other countries, like Iran, the government is greedy, greedy for authority, for money, for everything. Gourmand pour l'argent, gourmand pour, euh, pour toutes les choses. Here in the center, a group of young people of mixed backgrounds are studying Farsi together. In another corner, a woman is sipping tea while reading a book. Since coming to France 35 years ago, Abbas admits he has been spared the daily anguish of living under such a system, as he was able to carve out a life of freedom for himself. I've made a life for myself here. I've had a lot of luck here in France, so I haven't known fear. But back in my home country, women, children, parents, they carry fear with them all the time. Often when people flee their countries of origin, they try to cut off connection with our homeland, beginning with the culture. But for Abbas, shining a light on his culture has been a way of showcasing a different side to his country. I'm not a nationalist, but let's not forget that if you look at the history of Persia and what French writers said about Persian culture, I can only say we have a very rich culture. We even had human rights 2,000 years ago. That's very important. Friendship and love, these are major things to Iranians. And it's also been a way for him to keep doing what he knows best. Because I come from a musical background, my father was a great musician, and since I was seven, I've been involved in music and theater. Since I've arrived in France, I've thankfully been able to work in film and give concerts and music festivals all over the world. I've published my book, I'm writing a screenplay, I've always had possibilities. Sharing culture through arts, literature, food, language, these are all ways to keep people united. These are elements that have withstood the test of time, and these are the lasting legacies to each respective country, region, tribe. And to Abbas and others like him, the legacy of Khomeini has been the inability to celebrate their culture without restriction. Perhaps if culture was at the forefront of unifying a country through its forms and differences, then the fighting wouldn't be an option, hypothesizes Abbas. For a hundred years, we've only had 11 days on earth with no war. That's a figure worth crying over. For a hundred years, there has always been war. That's a real shame for us, and it hurts me to say these words. Every now and then, I watch the news, and I quickly change it to watch something on animals. Every now and then, we cry about what we've become, and why are we so removed from life? Why so much negative energy? That's why I see culture as a real badge for, for many people. To me, it's very important. It's a way of keeping us alive. And that's it for this edition of Midi's Junction with me, Anne-Marie Bassada. 
A special thank you to the Puya Cultural Center and to Abbas, whose music you've been listening to. And a special thank you to all my guests in this edition. Minis Junction will return with a fresh new episode on the last Saturday of September to account for the summer vacation lull in August. Remember to subscribe to RFI Minis Junction on your favorite podcast platform to make sure you never miss an episode. And if you've liked what you've been listening to, don't forget to rate the podcast so others can find it online. That's Minis Junction brought to you by RFI English Service.